0: Welcome to Talk World Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk World Radio, we are discussing dramatic political developments in Pakistan with Professor Junaid S. Ahmad, who is the director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality and teaches law, religion, and global politics in Islamabad, Pakistan. He does a wide array of consultancy on issues related to international law and international affairs. Junaid is also the founder and chair of the Palestine Solidarity Committee Pakistan. Uh, Junaid Ahmad welcome to Talk World Radio.
1: David so good to be with
0: you. Before we get to Pakistan uh, I don't believe I've ever said the word decoloniality before. Uh, can you can you fill me in on where that comes from?
1: Right that uh, we added that name into our center to distinguish ourselves and to make it so complicated for others <laughs> to, to know. But, but no I think that um, uh, many of your uh, viewers and listeners may know that uh, at the present uh, moment throughout the world and I, I dare say not just in the global south but also in the global north uh, there is a a school of thought a movement a trajectory to deepen uh, decolonization that that we understand the process of of Colonialism of the past as not having gone away as a form of neo-colonial world order still remaining and therefore the uh, impetus and the uh, uh, the responsibility relies upon us to deepen that process of decolonization uh, and so
0: this is what decoloniality is all about. Excellent. Um so let's get to pakistan he, he, what has happened uh with imran khan and and what is uh, the background of his story well I, you know i I, want, I don't want to presume too
1: much uh, knowledge uh about from the viewers and listeners about uh, what's been going on not just now but over the past couple of months and in some ways over the past couple of years and decades uh, with regards to Imran Khan, because his political life uh, begins in '97, and his uh, life as a, a a larger-than-life figure in Pakistani um, public life begins even well before that, people should know that he was the famous cricketer first, uh, who t- then turned a politician. He led the Pakistani uh, team to the World Cup in 1992. Very well respected. As a philanthropist afterwards establishing the first free cancer hospital uh in all of Asia uh, named after his late mother who who passed away from cancer, so he had a very untarnished record uh, in nineteen ninety seven He had decided to enter uh politics because he believed that simple uh simple welfare um, a charitable and philanthropic work was insufficient to fundamentally transform the um, very corrupt uh, political system that Pakistan um, has had over its entire history, in fact. So, uh, you know, <laughs> Imran Khan has been this character that has entered Pakistani political life in a very major way. Someone said that this is the age of the politics of Imran Khan in Pakistan over the past now, you can say two decades. And he has had, I think, two positions that our uh, listeners should know that have been key as part of his political platform. One has been the enormous levels of corruption, pillage, and plunder by the so-called civilian democratic politicians uh, in the country we hear a lot about Pakistan of having this uh, of having been under military rule for half of the country's history and that certainly is true and the military has played um, a very you know, nefarious role in many instances but we sometimes forget that the civilian Democrats have played an equally. Um, horrible uh, role in the country, which is the context in which a person like Imran Khan arises and is becomes so popular. So one was the uh, the venality of the and the corruption of the political class, and the other one was, uh, which has of course uh, been uh, very central in the ousting and the removal of Imran Khan, was the critique of Pakistan's foreign policy, which was uh, basically about subordinating the interests of Pakistan to the United States throughout the Cold War and then throughout the so-called War on Terror beginning in 2001. And so Imran Khan stood alone as the the Pakistani politician who spoke out against uh, the War on Terror, specifically the Afghan theater of the War on Terror, of the War on Terror, for two reasons that many of us share. One is it's immoral and it's illegal with a huge uh, human toll. And the second one, uh, that it was counterproductive. It was only fueling militancy uh, and terrorism, both in Afghanistan as well as in Pakistan, where the spillover effects of that war was enormous. So this is a little bit of background, I think, that maybe viewers and listeners would appreciate before Imran Khan ultimately is elected prime minister in 2018 and I don't know if David you want me to then now fast forward to to what does happen right now
0: or before you do that uh, some people may be familiar but uh, part of that foreign policy critique was an absolute denunciation of drone murders, uh, which in the U.S. media are simple, routine, completely acceptable police actions uh, akin to picking up litter off the street. You don't even use the word murder. Uh, Can you talk about his position on blowing people up with missiles from robot airplanes? Absolutely.
1: So as part of that larger critique of the war on terror, the specific element of both uh, American drone attacks as well as uh, American, sometimes special forces operations coming inside to Pakistani territory from Afghanistan. All of these things he had firmly denounced uh, in terms of drone attacks. I mean, he had led many uh, marches to the northwestern areas where these drone attacks were happening. You know, basically the U.S., Uh, And this is against, uh, under the liberal President Obama, the so-called kill list of of these, um, supposedly uh, these militants and terrorists that the U.S. has itself decided. Um, And and so there were plenty of drone strikes that were taking place, killing numbers of civilians, funerals, marriages, uh, and so on. And uh, the interesting thing here is that he also got a, a lot of, uh, international solidarity and support, I remember myself i've been teaching in Pakistan forever, um, hosting uh, Medea Benjamin and others who joined him on this trip uh, to a very to the northern areas where in fact the Pakistani military had cu- kept you know most of the press in the dark and the of course at the behest of the United States, which kept on claiming that Pakistan was not doing enough. To help out in the war effort uh, to defeat the Taliban in Afghanistan. And so, yes, Khan was, uh, you know, again, as, as I said earlier, stood out um, amongst the entire political class as the only politician that spoke out firmly um, against, yes, over the, the war on terror in general, but yes, specifically, these types of attacks, drone strikes. Uh, that were completely immoral and illegal and violated Pakistani sovereignty so blatantly.
0: So I so I interrupted your your flow of thought there. You were going to continue with now what has happened uh, in the in the political career of of Imran Khan.
1: Well, yeah, I mean I think that that background was probably useful for people to to know where Imran Khan is coming from and how he is so uh dis- distinct and uh, different from uh the other two major political parties that have dominated pakistani political life since the 1990s one is the pakistan muslim league of the nawaz sharif, of, of the sharif brothers the younger brother Shabazz sharif is in power um and the other political party the pakistan peoples party which uh, ha, was founded by the Ali Bhutto in the 1970s. His daughter Benazir Bhutto was very famous. Was assassinated in 2007, and then the party was bequeathed, turned over to uh, the the uh, uh, the son, and the and the until the son comes of age to the husband. So this is how democratic politics works in Pakistan. So these are two family dynasties. That just so happened to be the richest families also in Pakistan. So politics for them is a way of making money, is a way of ma- pillaging and plundering the country. That was the experience that Pakistanis had uh, for the past 30 years before Imran Khan, uh, they elected Imran Khan to power. So there was a lot of hope and uh, from Imran Khan. Um, sadly uh, that there was the, the Pakistan is is in such a position that it will take a long time, it will take some time to pull itself out from um, the vestiges of the rule by mafia, of the corruption in the judiciary, in the bureaucracy. Um, in the even within the of course the military itself and so I think that uh, Imran Khan is yes a very well respected individual in terms of his personal integrity honesty and so on which is why that we have seen that even though the performance in terms of governance and economic uh, uh, progress in the country has not been that great of course we Pakistanis also dealt with COVID like the rest of the world and has seen incredible inflation also like many parts of the world. Uh, so even despite the fact that ordinary Pakistanis um, did not see an improvement um, in, in, in or much improvement in their quality of life, living standards, they still remarkably – and this is the, the remarkable thing, David – After Khan was ousted supposedly constitutionally uh, in this vote of no confidence, a huge outpouring of support throughout the countries, throughout the major, forget about major cities, but even towns and villages came out for Khan. This was something unprecedented, David. And I say that because in the history of the country, we have had um, uh, civilian leaders that have been ousted by military leaders or by some other uh, way by the president saying that this was a uh, corrupt, but no one would come out on the streets to support <laughs> to, to support those because they were pretty much fed up with them as well. I mean, it's not like they had done anything uh, for the people. Uh, Khan was the first time in the more than 70-year history of Pakistan where a civilian prime minister has been ousted, yet massive outpouring has come out in all the major cities. And one last thing, which is incredibly important, even within the military itself, which was the the high command, the top brass of the military, specifically the chief of army staff, and uh, was very supportive of this regime change that happened to get Khan outside of power. He was very much in cahoots with not, uh, not only the domestic politicians, but of course, centrally with Washington. Um, it, he is even isolated. In fact, Imran Khan seems to be more popular than the chief of army staff within the armed services itself, particularly the junior ranks and uh, the soldiers. So we're facing a very interesting situation right now in which they continue to try to target Khan. And we'll get to this with this now, these terrorism charges, which for most folks are absolutely bogus and farcical.
0: We're speaking with Junaid Ahmad, who is director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality, Uh, so he wasn't ousted by popular demand. How exactly was he ousted, Uh, and what is the story with this possible uh, prosecution? Right. Well, uh,
1: just uh, right now, um, just, the, the the latest news is that the thro- uh, the courts have thrown out this kind of this charge under the military anti-terrorism act. So supposedly, Khan gave this speech in which he in which his uh, one of his main aides was detained, imprisoned, and tortured. And Khan, in his speech, said that we will uh, <laughs> we will pursue legal cases against those uh the inspector general of the police as well as other um, corrupt uh, lower court judges who had oh, uh, detained this person unlawfully and because of that speech the the government uh, said that we're going to now try him for terrorism charges now of course this was completely laughable and ridiculous and be- therefore now that's been thrown out um and so i think that what we are seeing now is this this the 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 current regime doing nothing else but trying to target Khan to get him out of the political uh, scene in the country. It, and it's only backfiring. It's backfiring so much, David, that you have articles in the New York Times, in Time magazine, almost saying that, look, you know, we were supportive of this. We were the ones that got you uh, Khan outside of politics, but you are, uh, you know, engaged in such buffoonery and pathetic tactics that you are only making Imran Khan even more popular amongst the people. Uh, so th- th- this is the, the the situation that we have right now. Of course, we're Pakistan. Many of your viewers may also know is dealing with incredibly uh, horrible floods right now as well that uh, that that we're dealing with. But but in terms of the political situation. Um, they are go- They're trying to do everything possible to target Khan, which is absolutely backfiring and only making him more and more popular.
0: So, so what, if anything, is the U.S. role in exactly how he was ousted, removed from power, uh, regime changed, uh, and what's the what's the future? Yeah,
1: no, I mean, I think uh, let me get back to this. this is very uh, crucial. So. Um, in in the month of basically throughout the month of uh, of March, um, Imran Khan. Um, so it began. Uh, there 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 are a plethora of issues why uh, Washington, Tel Aviv, Riyadh, all these Gulf regimes would want him out. The plethora of issues we can get into that. But what what was the immediate trigger catalyst was that Khan had arrived in Moscow uh, to meet President Putin on the day. When Putin had uh, gone into in his, his military operation into uh, Ukraine, and immediately the Western um, pundits and Western political leaders and media wanted Khan to denounce his host, Putin, for, for, the, for the invasion, at which he did not. So when he gets back back to Pakistan, the European Union uh, uh, collectively issue him a letter saying that now you must denounce Putin. And he refuses to. And he says that you you treat us like slaves. Um, and 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 our issues, when we raise the issue, for example, Indian human rights abuses in Kashmir, you don't care at all or what's going on in Palestine. Yet you want us to do this. So clearly the antagonisms were, you know, escalating between uh, Khan and, and and Western capitals. And Washington, which never forgave Khan for his... Correct position on the war in Afghanistan. I think the national American national security state never forgave him, which is why it is astounding that Biden never called Khan since uh, Khan uh, since Biden took power. Even during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, when uh, the Americans depended on the Pakistanis to help out and facilitate that withdrawal, they never called. And I, I suspect it's not. Uh, this has less to do with Biden and more to do with the American uh, national security state, which never forgave Khan for effect- effectively being correct, that there is no military solution to these problems. So I think that there so, there's a plethora of issues, whether it's close relationship with China, uh, the attempt to improve relations with Russia, which historically had been an adversary of Pakistan. And of course, on the question then on Palestine, when you see... The the tendency, the the trend being Washington and Tel Aviv compelling the the Gulf countries, they don't have to compel them very much. They're more than willing to embrace uh, Israel and Zionism on their own. But the the, the tendency to embrace normalization with Israel, Khan being on the wrong side of that, Khan being firmly against that, uh, whereas other civilian and, and military elites in Pakistan um, seeing, 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 I don't know what benefit they see, but they supposedly see some benefit in normalizing ties. So there's so many reasons, uh, David, that I can go into that why these uh, foreign governments, including especially Washington and Tel Aviv, wanted, and, and New Delhi, wanted Khan out because of Khan's vocal position on
0: the Kashmiri issue as well. You know, people make these lists and they're ever growing, going back through the decades of the dozens and dozens of coups around the world and overthrows and regime changes and assassinations and attempted assassinations that the U.S. government has taken part in or facilitated or trained the people responsible. But something like this, whereas there's a general pressure on a government uh, and there's not uh, a helicopter flying in and people coming down ropes and and kidnapping a president uh it it doesn't go into any lists of of who's or regime changes uh and yet it, it seems there ought to be some list that it goes yeah. on
1: david i think that this is you hit the nail on the head i think we live in times well i mean we, uh, i i do think we'll probably see those times again direct uh you know military conflict it's I mean, I, I don't want to see it. Um, it will be very dangerous. But I think the main uh, characteristic of the time that we live in are hybrid wars, hybrid wars through through sanctions, through through, through um, color revolutions, uh, through pushing, funding, advancing uh, quote unquote civil society movements uh and and po- politicians et etc we see this in Latin America. I mean it's very, very obvious what's been going on in Latin America. We see this in places like china and and this is exactly it's like it's like right from the playbook within one month, you gather all of these political parties that hate each other, but for some reason are now meeting almost every other day with the u s embassy and the u s ambassador um and you see all of a sudden the media become anti-government, be, be, become anti-Imran Khan, all of a sudden the, media, the entire media. So we, we have a very good sense. It's quite obvious, David, you have to be blind not to see that there's incredible amounts of money coming in to, to buy off these politicians, to buy off the media, senior judiciary, and of course, <clears throat> most crucially in the context of Pakistan, uh, the uh the upper echelons of the military high command, and especially in this case, we know the chief of army staff who was always the most powerful person in Pakistan, and that's uh, General Bajwa. So in in the in in a period of one month for this to happen, in addition to the famous letter that uh, uh that was issued by a an American Assistant Secretary of State to the Pakistani ambassador, uh saying very directly that if uh, Pakistan, uh, if the vote of no, this was before even there was a a motion to a vote of no confidence tabled by anyone. This American uh, diplomat says that if the vote of no confidence does not succeed against Khan, Pakistan will have to, will, will be punished. But if it does succeed, then we will be willing to forgive Pakistan <laughs> forgive for what we don't know but but this is how the empire speaks as you know David yeah. so uh so so that 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 was authenticated the Pakistani National Security Council authenticated the that correspondence and all of the I mean you know um the visible marks of a classic regime popu- uh, regime operation were there and and th- though it happened through so a so called vote of no confidence all of a sudden you know dozens and dozens of politicians switching sides and the media involved and civil society involved it was a classic regime change operation david
0: so uh, Imran Khan, can he come back into power and is there a, a movement larger than that one person uh, that can come back into power uh, regardless of his individual fate that that is resistant to U.S. military domination?
1: Yeah, that's a, a very good question. So right now, it, it seems like um Uh, Khan has uh, survived the the, the type of, uh, you know, both the regime change and the attacks. He survived quite well. And in fact, his support seems to be increasing. Uh, Now, Khan, uh, what we have to understand about these popular mobilizations is, and particularly in light of uh, a lot of caricatures that have been made of these popular mobilizations. Uh, on the one hand, yes, there is a, an incredible respect for Khan despite his flaws, mistakes, etc. that, I mean, for example, I do not know, I do not have a student, I do not have a family member of Khan that has not also been critical of, of of some of Khan's policies, uh, yet they they remain convinced of of the man's integrity as well his intention. And in comparison to the rest of the political class, mountains above. So that on the one hand, but on the second, the intense disgust uh, and resentment of the political of the traditional political class that has existed over the past thirty years since 1989, 1990, that has just looted and plundered the country. Um, and so they, they, so they, these two elements, respect for Khan, yes, but also uh, a complete rejection of what has transpired before. And so this is what we're seeing in, in the people now. I mean, the the current government, their politicians, the leading politicians, heads of the Bhutto, the Shriks, they cannot come out in public. People will be throwing uh, well, hopefully, just throwing tomatoes at them, not go further than that. But, uh, but, but they they literally cannot come out in public. This is the situation right now in Pakistan. So, Khan is immensely popular. What he has been calling for, and what the what but people have been calling for, the public eighty percent of Pakistan are fresh elections. This government, new government, has no legitimacy whatsoever. Uh, are, are fresh elections to be held. This is normally what would happen in this situation. And they are just trying to postpone it as much as possible, um, trying to get the chief of army staff to try to help them to prevent uh, elections from happening in the country. So this is, this is the major tussle. Khan and the majority of the population that want elections, in which it's, I mean, almost certain that Khan will sweep the elections, um, Versus a government, a regime backed by the uh, chief of army staff, backed by Washington and and the Gulf regimes and New Delhi and Tel Aviv that don't want uh, elections to take place. In a nutshell, that's
0: the situation we are in right now. Uh, Junaid Ahmad, we got about two minutes left. You mentioned the massive floods in Pakistan. Uh, what can people do to help? What's going on, and and how does this play into the political situation?
1: Well, just last night, I mean, I witnessed a nonstop, many, many hours, as as much as I could witness. Uh, Imran Khan had a massive kind of. Uh, drive for uh, fundraising for relief efforts. But of course, I mean, there, there are many other um, uh, groups that are involved in this. It's it's just been horrendous this year. I mean, these are, uh, but, but, but of course, the tragedy in this, David, is that these are becoming entirely predictable uh, because of climate change. South Asia, uh, all the climate scientists have saying that this is going to be one of the most w- worst affected areas. It already has been Bangladesh especially and now in Pakistan these floods have been absolutely horrendous not just in uh, typically in the province of Sindh but also in in a province of uh, KPK and, and and in other areas and so I think that uh, the Pakistani government uh, and not just the Pakistani government I mean the, the, the climate debt owed by the rich countries to countries like Pakistan I think that uh, Pakistan right now, deserves incredible amount of assistance and help from those countries primarily responsible for these climate catastrophes occurring right now in Pakistan.
0: We've been speaking with Junaid Ahmad, who is director of the Center for the Study of Islam and Decoloniality and teaches law, religion, and global politics in Islamabad, Pakistan. Junaid, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk World Radio. It was my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Peace is the way.